When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth, and the next time you hear from me will be the end of this episode. But Sam and Rebecca hammered out an episode during their travels. They took to the skies to attend the reveal of the 2021 Cadillac Escalade, and you'll hear some chatter in there about the return of the Hummer name on an electric truck as well. And from there, our intrepid pair reconvened in Chicago for the auto show, where Sam was able to interview Joe Eberhardt, CEO of Jaguar Land Rover North America. So let's begin. We go now to the Delta Lounge at LAX. Hello, welcome to Wheelbearings episode 139. I'm Sam Abu Al Samad from Navigant Research. And I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. And Rebecca and I are sitting together again this morning <laughs> in the uh, Delta Sky Club Lounge at uh, LAX um, at. Uh, Oh, oh, dark 30. <laughs> we're we're, we're uh, just leaving uh, an event that Cadillac did last night uh, to unveil the, unveil the new 2021 Escalade. And we're on our way to Chicago for the auto show where we may pick up if we have time and, and record some more stuff there. But Rebecca, let's start with the Escalade. We yes. saw the new Escalade last night. What do you think? I thought it was uh, a, a really nice iteration of the of the brand of, of that model. You know, it, it's interesting uh, talking anecdotally to people on the different coasts. On the East Coast, uh, a lot of Escalades are used in for Uber and Lyft for car services. Delivery services, for, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, but on the West Coast, they're more family cars. And, you know, they're certainly used in that way as well, but um, they are seen as, especially if they're not black, they are seen as very... And we're referring to the color of the vehicle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yes. Especially if the vehicle is, um, and this is pre-coffee, I'm literally drinking my coffee as we speak. Um, So I think that, that... they've really have focused on the family. They've tried to, especially the interior, the interior is absolutely stunning. And 
it's worthy of an Escalade, and the, more importantly, the Cadillac brand. So I think this is, you know, one of Michael Simcoe is the head designer at GM. This is one of his first iterations. We're starting to see his influence on these products, which, for better or for worse, means it's more understated, uh, not as much of an in-your-face sort of design, which some people may want that more, you know. Um, it's And... You know, that'll be interesting to see the reception. And I don't mean to imply in any way that this is not a Midwestern car as well. It's just having gone from east to west coast and talked to people anecdotally about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the places where you're much more likely to see an Escalade, you know, are, you know, along the, the, the two coasts, as well as, you know, across the south, I think, you know, places like Texas, you know, they're right. also very popular, um, you know, where big SUVs, especially big luxury SUVs, generally tend to be very popular, you know, and really, you know, this is, this is a very important vehicle for Cadillac, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, the Escalade has been, uh, you know, I would say probably the most, um, by, by far and away the most um, profitable vehicle for the Cadillac brand. You know, it's not necessarily it's, you know, it's not necessarily the biggest selling in terms of unit volumes, but in terms of profit margins, absolutely, you know, they probably make upwards of thirty thousand dollars per unit that they sell and profits. It is, and so it's it's important for them to get this right. And you know, as in the past, you know, this Escalade is based on the same full size SUV platform that's used for the Chevy Tahoe, the Suburban, and the GMC Yukon. What's it called now? Uh, GMT 1100 or? Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. what, the, what the code name is, but you know, so this is this is a new platform. Right. Um, you know, it's based, it's derived from the one for the current generation full-size pickups. Right. Um, and you know, you and I have both had a chance to at least ride in, in a couple of other iterations of this. Uh, in December, uh, I rode in the Tahoe um, when uh, GM unveiled that. Um, along with the Suburban. And then I think you, you had a chance to, to drive. To, did you get to drive the? We, drive we really didn't get to drive it. We, we it, They were pre-production. Um, but I did just get out of the Silverado, okay, uh, which is built on the same platform. And but this is quite a bit different. Exactly. So you can't really compare the two. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of utilizing the same platform, Silverado pickup truck, obviously, um, but it'll it'll definitely be interesting. I'm very anxious to drive this to see how it compares. Yeah. So the you know where where this one really differs uh, compared to prior generations is these these new SUVs are the first full size utilities from GM to go to an independent rear suspension system. Oh, so that'll uh, really make a big difference. Yeah, it how does. How do we feel that exactly? Um, Overall, the driving dynamics of this one, um, of the, the Tahoe, are vastly improved mm. compared to before. You know, in the past, we had a solid rear axle. Um, it was coil. On the, they, I think they, the last generation did use coil springs on the rear um, it, rather than the leaf springs that are used on the pickups. Uh, but now with, the, with an independent rear suspension, there's a couple of big things. First of all, the ride quality because, you know, you, you have a lot less unsprung mass. You know, you're not, you don't have to move that whole axle around. The, right. the, the center part, the differential, you know, is solidly bolted to the frame now. And so only the wheels move up and down. Um, and that has some, you know, in addition to the, the dynamic characteristics of the vehicle, it also has some another important benefit, which is in uh, that third row legroom. Because when you have a solid rear axle, 
you know, the floor pan has to be considerably higher because you have to leave room for that axle to move up and down as it goes right. over bumps. That makes a big difference and, on that leg room then. And that, you know, that was one of the huge advantages that uh, Ford got a decade ago when when they switched over to independent rear suspension on the uh, Expe Expedition and Navigator. Um, because now when, when the differential doesn't have to move, you can make that floor pan probably a good six inches lower. And that's a lot rear. of leg room. And one of the, the big complaints about the, the GM utilities has always been in that third row, you know, the seat is typically bolted just straight on the floor. So when right. you're sitting in the third row, you'll, you're always sitting with kind of a knees up attitude, right. you know, right. um, rather than more chair-like yeah. uh, yeah. uh, positioning. Mm -hmm. And so you have much more, it's much more comfortable back there. Plus the wheelbase has been stretched by, mm -hmm. I think, four, four or five inches now on the, the new generation. So you have more leg room and a more comfortable seating position, which is going to make that third row really much more useful. Plus the body's also a little bit longer. So you have, I think they said on the, the standard wheelbase version, 68% more cargo space this behind that third row. It, well, in all three or of them. In all three. Yeah. Well, because there was, a, there was a significant amount of cargo space behind the third row. And obviously it's not, you know, copious because you've got the third row, but it's a lot more than I've seen. It's probably a good eight inches deeper mm -hmm. than what I've seen in other vehicles. And, you know, I'm looking at your suitcase right now, and that's gonna, you're going to be able to fit that, you know, in that vehicle far better than you would in something else. Because there are some where you have to literally stand the suitcase up. Yeah, stand them up or, or put them sideways. <laughs> right. You know, um, where, whereas in these new ones, you can put them lengthwise and, and stack them side by right. side. Uh, so it is much more useful. Yeah. Th it, oh, go ahead. I think there was a lot of attention to to detail in terms of usage and making it user friendly and doing things like recognizing how people use these vehicles. And when you put, have that third row and it's occupied, you still have stuff. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, you if you you're not just taking, you know, what is it, two seven seater max? Yeah. I think. Um, you know, you're not just taking people uh, to and from someplace. You know, you're you're doing activities with them. Mm -hmm. They've got you know gear to haul around as well. And so, I think that that they did a good job really paying attention to how people are using it. Yeah, and then you know the other thing, in addition to just the seating position, the other advantage that this new suspension gets you is they've they've done a lot better job of body control. Mm -hmm. One of the things uh, at the the Tahoe. Uh, reveal or the background or before the actual reveal, uh, which was at the GM Milford Proving Grounds. We mm -hmm. had a chance to go for a ride uh, around the, the ride and handling loop at the Proving Grounds. And they took us, you know, at that time we went, the first lap we went around um, in an expedition. Uh, and it was the high end expedition with the, the adaptive damping system. Um, and then we went in the Tahoe. Uh, with their optional air spring suspension, which is also available, four-corner air spring suspension, which is also available on the Escalade. And it's all the other thing that they have on there is their uh, MagnaRide dampers, um, which uh, are a continuously variable uh, damper that you know adjusts you know almost instantaneously, like you know, up, you know over a hundred times a second. Wow! And um, so the the thing that we noticed. You know, going from the expedition to the um, the uh, uh, the Tahoe, and this, the same will be true of this vehicle, is you know 
that that route loop we were on has a variety of different road surfaces, you know, going over train tracks right, and right. rumble strips and, you know, the kinds of things you're going to see in the real world. Right. And in the expedition, we got a lot more side-to-side head toss mm. um, and, and more vertical motion, too. Yeah. Um, and in the, uh, the Tahoe, it was much more controlled. There was... It was much more minimal side-to-side motion. Wow. Um, you know, and it, it felt more supple. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, in this, in, for this one, it'll be even better. Um, you know, so that that overall, you know, makes riding around in this thing a much more pleasant experience. Sure, sure. So. Yeah. No, and, and you know, when we think about the brand overall, as you said, I mean, this is, it's incredibly important from a profitability standpoint. But in many ways, it is the flagship now. You know, the sedans are really not the flagships of brands anymore. And certainly yeah, not the CT6 for CT6 is now out of production as right. of last week. You know, so. it's certainly not for consumers. And so it's incredibly important to keep Cadillac, especially as they transition into you know, what, what Steve Carlyle's vision, he's the president of Cadillac, what his vision is, what Michael Simcoe, the, the designer, head designer for all of GM, but has a very you know, direct line to Steve and is very influential in, in creating the brand. Um, I also spent some time talking to Melissa Grady, who's the new CMO, mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, has a background. She came from Jaguar Land Rover. She was there for a while. And you know, she didn't. It's always interesting with GM people because they're so used to having prepared remarks. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Well, that's true of all. Yeah, all yeah it is. Um, you know, but she, but just talking to her a little bit about the brand, I think that she does understand that balance between um, appreciating and building on heritage, but not living in the past. Mm-hmm. And and that's you know hopefully something that we'll start to see. I I was teasing her because I her predecessor i could not stand to see one more black cadillac escalade on wet cobblestones in greenwich village <laughs> because that my friends is your uber yeah. <laughs> that is your lift that is your ride hailing yeah unfortunately that was the that was kind of the hero image for this whole uh was it dare greatly yes, campaign exactly. that they did yes. you know you'd, you'd see you know you'd see these uh cadillacs you know as you said you know in kind of this foggy image you know on the it, cobblestones it just, in brooklyn or greenwich or somewhere it, it drove me crazy it was like please get that thing to a baseball game please yeah. put a family in it you know show it how people use it yeah. how how personal ownership people use it yeah. not how your livery I, I, service I, I, I wonder you know how much <laughs> of that was influenced by the fact that you know at the time when they came up with that campaign you know they had moved Cadillac headquarters to New York. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you know when when you're surrounded by New York, you know, and New York people in the office, you know, because they brought in a lot of people right, from from New York, you know, into the company at the time. You know, in Manhattan, you know, the when you see an Escalade, that is 99.9% of the time it is going to be a black livery vehicle, either an Uber or Lyft exactly. or a black car service. Um, you know, and you know, it's going to be parked out in front of some building waiting for, you know, some affluent, you know, passenger right. to come in, you know, get in the vehicle and go off somewhere. So, yeah, it's I think changing that image, you know, to, um, you know, move beyond that, I think is going to be it's going to be crucially important for Cadillac. I, I think it will be because those images are iconic, but not in a personal ownership way. Mm-hmm. And that's and that was always my issue with that campaign. Besides Dare Greatly. 
you don't want to dare somebody to buy your car. I yeah. dare you. Yeah. <laughs> I dare you to buy that. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I think I think the sentiment behind the campaign was was reasonable when you look at the ads, but I I don't think that it, the that message really resonated in the way they wanted it, it to. It, it definitely it, did not. It did not. Yeah. It, there's a difference between dare greatly and and. Dare taking to be great. career risk, yeah. exactly, and dare to be, or taking a career risk or yeah. something, and so, you know, I'm I'm anxious to see how they will market both the Escalade and and just Cadillac. the rest of the brand, right? Yeah, the, and the, the rest the of the CT5 brand, and the CT4 exactly. and the XT6, right? Exactly. Oh so, yeah, so. it'll it'll be interesting. I, I I also had a chance to spend some time chatting with Melissa back in December at a mm. Cadillac business update meeting, and she expressed some of those same sentiments. So. Will, will be interesting to, to see how that plays out over the next year or so, right. because you know there's a lot of changes happening at Cadillac right now. Um, you know they've they've got you know they've had they've got at this point now with, with with the launch of the Escalade, the new Escalade this summer, they will basically have a completely new lineup they're, from two years ago. Right, they're going to have an they'll be one of the youngest lineups in on the luxury brand coming yeah, out. They, I think they, the old the oldest vehicle in the lineup now is the XT5. Right. Which is getting a, a little bit of an update this year, uh, but I think it's probably going to get a, a full redesign next year. Yeah. Um, and that will that will completely revamp the lineup. It will. And, and you know, what's interesting about the executives that are in place now, many of them inherited these products, mm-hmm. you know, and but they didn't they don't have to inherit. the Yeah, because there's, you know, it's like three or four, three, four, five year. Right. Uh, life, you know, cycle time to to design, exactly. develop a product. Right. So. so they're you know they're they're just coming in now, but uh, but no, I thought the event itself was was good. I think the vehicle will be really interesting. I did like the fact that they did make accessible many of their executives and yeah. got a chance to talk to Crystal, one of the head interior designers, and she's had a great career, you know, throughout GM and and again understands. Understands that buyer, understands the needs of the consumer that's going to buy it. Speaking of the interior, what did you think of that new dashboard? So that so that it's it's and I'm sure you'll post pictures. We, we, of it. we saw a tease of it yeah, a, a few but weeks ago. There are these but. long. It's this long OLED screen, and I'll let you talk about what that means. I but it was. I mean, it's it's almost like it reminded me of the Porsche Taycan first. Mm-hmm. But it's almost a little bit more practical and more usable and user friendly, because it has dual uh, dual use. It what do you call that? What? Operation uh, d- d- dual, operation. Uh, dual, dual, um, dual mode dual operational. Mode. So operational. so it's it's the perfect blend because you can either do touch screen, which is what I like, <laughs> or, or a rotary controller on the dash. Rotary on the control. control like Sam likes. <laughs> so, so, you know, given that this is an audio podcast, yes, let's describe exactly. a little bit what this looks like. You know, so over the last few years, you know, we've, we've seen this move towards the, the center screen, go, moving from down in the stack to being mounted up on top of the dashboard, right. kind of tablet style, like a tablet standing up. Right. And almost yeah. like a, it, it can almost look like an afterthought sometimes mm-hmm. if we've seen people, but it's to keep it in your line of vision right. a little bit more. And and yeah, and so you'll see it in that middle, and all of a sudden you'll just see a, a, a screen kind of stuck yeah. there. So now imagine that you know taking that and stretching it from you know kind of the right side, roughly equivalent to the right edge of the um, the center console, all the way across to the left edge of the dashboard. Right, this massive display that's standing up, but it's not flat; it's curved. Right, um, and it's and, one. It's and, and one it's actually smooth. 
yeah, uh, the, continuous piece of glass. Right, and uh, but well, there's actually two because you've got well, the, right. the 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 big one, you know, that spans you know roughly 38 inches across. Right. Um, you know, and then in front of that, there's a, a second smaller one. So you've got this layer directly in front of the driver, which is for the instrument cluster. Right. And but it, it follows the same profile, uh, and it's a, it's a re- I think it's a really visually interesting design. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, the the instrument cluster is is set just it's just like half an inch closer to the driver and they said they wanted it to be Mm -hmm. closer they wanted that to stand out and so it's this lovely layered effect but as you say it's almost like a like the petals of a flower where you know one is sort of all a wider petal that comes around and then encases a smaller one and it just has this beautiful i mean the 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 side angle on it is just gorgeous but then they do have in the center stack then they do have the um the controls for climate control and and you know readily accessible Mm -hmm. buttons which is nice too and i think it's both legal and safety wise and for ease of functionality you can just adjust the climate as you need it so i didn't see all what else is there so, heated seats and stuff like that yeah or, i mean you've got all yeah. the usual amenities right but like there. in those buttons oh yeah in just the, yeah. that that line of buttons but i think it's it's so clean it looks just absolutely beautiful right and so you know within this array this the spans in front of you there's actually three separate displays embedded in there so you know the, the back one the, the large one is one sheet of glass and then the second sheet of glass in front of that and um, on the, the left and the right, you have touchscreens. So um, the, there's a seven-inch touchscreen on the left, um, you know, which lets you just toggle between um, the, some of the different displays for the instrument cluster to go to the and that's the AR just driver and, focus, and the navigation, yeah, driver centric, right. And so that's just a you know, there's only a couple of things on there, right. And then on the right, you have a big, almost 17-inch. Uh, diagonal I mean, display, the touchscreen there, and then a 14-inch uh, instrument cluster display. Right. And all three of these use what's known as OLED technology. If you've got an iPhone 10 or later, or most Android, you know, most higher-end Android phones, these all use OLEDs, and you know they also use these on a lot of high-end TVs right. uh, from LG. Well, LG and, is one that sourced the screen. Right. And and they're made they're, they're a significant supplier for GML. Right. So. You know, for those that are not familiar with OLED technology, it's different from an LCD. An LCD, which is what you typically have for the screens in a car, the way that works is it's actually a series of shutters. It's backlit, and you have a series of fil- color, different color filtered shutters, red, green, and blue color filtered shutters that open and close. And you know, when you want it off, when you want it black, you know, you're closing all, you're closing those shutters. But you know, there's always a little. It's never 100 percent mm, so opaque. Light bleed. So there's always, a, you know, at night, even right. when it's in a dark mode and a black mode, there's always a little bit of light bleed through there. And this is one of the things that Dan complains a lot about with with all these screens, you know, and justifiably so, that at night, you know, it's still too bright in there, even right. when it's in the dark mode. Right. Um, with an OLED, the way it works is every individual pixel is generating its own light. So there's no backlight, no shutters. When you when you go to black on an OLED, you're literally turning off those individual pixels. So when it's black, it's black. black. And that's yeah. why you were saying last night that it's so, you get that really rich black color. Yeah, right. right. And so you get much higher contrast, okay. but also at, you know, at night, you know, in the dark, it's right. dark, right. which is right. the way you want it. Yeah. You don't want yeah. those visual distractions when you're driving at night. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it looks great. Right. Um, you know, it, it functions better. You know, and uh, it's from a safety perspective, well. yeah, 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 and um, you know, and then that instrument cluster 
you know, because, you know, you've got this 14-inch OLED in there. You know, they're doing some interesting things in there, like right. the, um, the uh, uh, augmented reality display. Yeah, that's So you can crazy. toggle between four different modes. You've got uh, you know, your basic gauge mode. Uh, there's a night vision mode. We still have the night vision system yeah. that's available on there. Uh, the Cadillac uh, originally launched in 1998. Wow. Um, and... So at night you can you can have that night vision display. You can have a standard navigation display. So you know when you're using nav, you can bring the the, the map over from the the center screen over right in front of you. Right. And then there's this augmented reality navigation display, which what that does is it takes the view from the the forward facing camera, and they've gone to a higher resolution forward facing camera. Right. They project that in that in the cluster, and then overlay the the prompts. Um, your navigation prompts right on that, like on the street. So you see, you see the view. Okay, there's that corner where I'm supposed to turn, and there's the arrow pointing right at that corner, right. and it's r- what's right in front of you. Because it's like Google Street Maps. Yes. Right. It's the Google well, Street it, Maps. Well, except it's not. It's not Street Maps. It's actually a live view from the camera as you're driving. Oh, because they showed us Google Street well, you, Maps. Well, you, you can get the night, yeah, you can get the Google thing. Street View okay. on the on the center dis, on the center okay. display for the center and the passenger but, side. Yeah, but the AR display right. is actually it's alive. Actually, that's so so cool. that's what they couldn't demonstrate because they didn't have a camera. Right. Yeah, because okay. they, they had this bench set up. Right. Okay. And um, that's crazy. So it, it um, yeah so it, it cool. looks yeah you know, I, I got a I went through a briefing yeah. last week uh, okay. with with their head of infotainment and. Um, we got a demo of that, and it's 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 really cool. Uh, it'll be interesting to try it out on the road to see how distracting it might be well, because you you know you you are look. I mean, it's it's up higher than it normally would be, right? But it's still it's know, not it's, in it's your not, head. It's not in the heads up display. Yeah. That's what I asked about because that was my first thought too. Was that it seemed like it might be distracting, and so it will be interesting. Yeah. To see how that how that works out, and then you know when you get to your destination, you know, right. it also you know it like you've, you know the little Google Maps pin. It actually literally overlays that on the the building that is your destination, so you can see it. Oh yeah, there's there's the building, there's the pen. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I mean, it's a cool idea. We'll see how well it works in in the real world, but um, it's it's an interesting approach. Well, it is, but it, and it also is a very much a precursor to um, self driving. Um, yeah, it'll help with. I mean, some of the issues with self driving is just finding that way. <laughs> yeah, lo- localizing, right. you know, get, getting the vehicle to understand where it is in, in real in, in space in, in real time. Right. Um, and, and speaking of that, um, you know, the Escalade, along with the CT4 and the CT5 this year, really? are all getting yeah. second generation Super Cruise. I haven't, I haven't driven Super Cruise yet, so I want to try it. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've driven it a couple times, and so this is an updated version. You know, they, when they originally did it on the CT6 a couple of years ago, it was based on an older electrical architecture in the vehicle. Um, and the reason why they haven't rolled it out to the new vehicles sooner is because it took a lot of tear up to implement it in, okay. in the CT6. And rather than go through all that right. on the existing vehicles, what they did was they waited until they were updating the vehicles with this new, what they call the Global B electrical architecture. They can okay. also call it digital vehicle platform, okay. um, which is designed with this kind of stuff in mind. Yeah, it enables yeah. things like over-the-air software updates yeah. so and all that's cybersecurity. The, both wire harnessing and the, all uh, The computers, the harness, way, yeah, all, the way the whole electrical system in the vehicle is put together. Enormous. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a big change, but now it enables them to do this kind of stuff. Okay. And so... Um, you know, when it when it launches um, the spring on the CT5 and the CT4, and then the summer on the Escalade, and then as each new Cadillac model comes out or gets updated over the next year and a half, they will add that to, to those as well. 
So they made a bunch of updates. It now one of the new features it has is auto lane change. So you tap the mm-hmm. turn signal, the, can- the sensors look around to see if there's anybody in the adjacent lane. If it's clear, the car will steer over right. and, and change lanes for you. That's you cool. know, it's still a hands-off system. Right. They still have the, the active driver monitor system. But one of the the challenges with the with the original version of that was the, the way it works it works very much like Face ID on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. You've got infrared emitters in the steering wheel, uh, in the steering wheel rim that light up your face with IR light. So you can't see it, but the IR camera can see it, and it's doing gaze detection. So it's looking to make sure that you're still watching the road. Okay. Um, With the original version on the CT6, when if you were driving down the road and the sun was behind you over your shoulder, the sunlight coming into the camera would flood it, and it could not see your face, and so it would disengage the system. Oh, gosh. Um, And, you know, the, the first drive I did, the media drive we did, um, we were driving from Cleveland to Chicago, you know, left Cleveland early morning, driving west, and sun was right, right over right, my shoulders. Right. Couldn't figure out why the system kept disengaging oh until about half an hour into the drive when the sun got up high enough that it, you know, it was no longer an issue, and then it worked fine. It's crazy. Um, and so they, they've done, they've repackaged it. So from the outside, it still looks, the camera on the column still looks the same, but now there's some better filtering on there. And they've, uh, inside the package, there's a hood over the camera. So they've, they've done some stuff to minimize the, the glare problem with right, the sun. Okay. So it should work much better. And it, they've expanded the, the high-definition map system that they use. So it's got more information. It knows now which lane you're driving in. Um, you know, so if you try to make a lane change into a lane, you know, that's about to disappear or it's going to become a ramp, um, you know, it won't, it won't do it. Right, you know, right. uh, so it's gotten a lot smarter. They've added some, a couple more radar sensors to the system. Um, so it should be a lot more capable and it'll continue getting more capable because now they have the ability to do those OTA updates. Right, right. Very cool. That's awesome. So the other thing that came out this week on Super Bowl Sunday was the GMC Hummer. Yeah. yeah. EV. <laughs> yes. So we've, we've been hearing for a while now that GM was going to build an electric pickup truck. You know, they started talking about it in the middle of last year. After G- early last year, GM tried to make a deal to invest in Rivian. Right. And that didn't come Ford about. Ford ended up. Ford ended up making that investment. Yes. And so GM proceeded with its own electric pickup truck right. program. Right. Um, and... Uh, Monday of last week, um, they made an announcement that the Detroit Hamtramck assembly plant, where they previously built the uh, Malibu, or they, they built the Impala and the Cadillac CT6 and the Chevy Volt and various other things, um, now that CT6 production has ended, they're closing that plant temporarily, retooling it from middle of next year onward. That plant is going to be dedicated to electric vehicle production. Right. And initially, there's going to be three products out of there. Uh, the cruise origin, uh, which we talked about last time, right, yep. um, and the GMC Hummer EV, yes, uh, in pickup truck and also in an SUV form, yes. So, what do you think about this? So, I think it's a it's a it's a fascinating turn of events for a a brand that has a well established reputation as a gas guzzler, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it's fascinating. But there's a lot of brand equity in there, too. And what I was told, because I said, how how did you decide, you know, how do you decide to suddenly bring back this brand in under GMC? 
And obviously, you know, they, they weren't going to bring back the Hummer brand by itself. That involves a whole other slew of issues. Yeah, you need dealers. dealers. And, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's you know, relaunching a brand, an independent brand is completely different. And basically, the whole discussion was somebody said to Mary Barra, hey, I think this is what they should do. And she said, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. You know, to- it was a lot more than that, obviously. But, yeah. you know, there's understanding that there's brand equity there and brand recognition mm-hmm. as well and I think you know it's it's sort of it's almost like this great uh, comeback story in somebody remaking themselves you know yeah. and and this brand that's known for one thing coming back and being something completely different yeah I mean going back to you know 2007 2008 before the the, the recession um, you know Hummer was the the poster boy for yeah. the the opposite of the green movement. Exactly. You know, this is the time. You know, in two thousand, starting about two thousand six, two thousand eight. You know, we were seeing gas prices rise. You know, it went up to four or four bucks a gallon right. across the country, and you know, everybody. You know, people were trying to promote hybrids and EVs. And, and then there was you know, then there was this Hummer out there that was the <laughs> opposite of everything they you know it was the opposite of prius you know and i mean you had you know environmental activists that were going on hummer lots and vandalizing right you know dealer lots and vandalizing the vehicles and um you know so it it represented everything that people and then you know when we had the the meltdown you know and gm went through bankruptcy you know it's like a lot of people said you know, the, well, the reason why GM went bankrupt, you know, is because they're building all these old-style dinosaur vehicles, gas-guzzling vehicles. You know, they need to build more efficient vehicles. Um, and, you know, then GM killed Hummer. Right. You know, the last Hummer uh, H3s rolled off the line in, in 2010, you know, ten, almost 10 years ago now. Um, and, you know, everybody, you know, and, you know, at that point, you know, gas prices were high again. So it you know, it's ironic now that they're bringing it back on EV, but actually, you know, I think it kind of makes sense because it kind of really symbolizes what GM's been talking about, you know, for a couple of years now, you know, yeah. Mary and, and Mark Royce and others have been saying the future of GM is electric. Right. We're going to go all electric. Right. And, you know, to, to the extent that, you know, last week after the, um, um, the the announcement of the plant retooling, you know, uh, uh, Paul Eisenstein was, was talking mm. to, uh, to Mark, and you know, he asked him, you know, because there were there were some photos that some spy photos that showed up of a Corvette, you know, with, with like a plug on it, mm. um, a prototype C8 with a plug on it, and um, he asked, you know, so you're going to do a plug-in hybrid um, Corvette, uh, and you know, Royce told him, we're done with hybrids, you know, we're going, we're going, moving away from internal combustion, no more hybrids, no more plug-in hybrids. So if there's going to be a plug-in Corvette, it's going to be an EV. Right. So you wow. know, this, you know, bringing back this nameplate, this brand that symbolized everything, everything that was the opposite of that as an electric vehicle, <laughs> I think, in some ways, is kind of brilliant. You know, right. I was talking it to is. Stephanie Brinley yesterday. Yeah. You know, she she called it kind of lazy. Oh. Um, hmm. You know, and I, I, guess, think- I, I, I guess you know, in some ways, you know, rather than trying to establish a new brand, you know, it. it a little bit, but um, you know, I think it does think make a lot of sense. I think it's economical. Yeah. I mean, st- starting a brand new brand, yeah. or even under if you're using it as a GMC, whatever, starting a new nameplate 
is incredibly expensive. Yeah. And there's a really long runway for that. And just talk to Genesis, right? Right. And so, you know, Genesis will tell you there's an incredibly long runway. So I don't think that that's in, I mean, I, Stephanie's a super smart woman, but I don't know that that, that was, that was not my perspective on it. This was, this was going into the stable and picking a horse that maybe had a different reputation you like know, a Mustang Mach-E. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's yeah. the thing is that there's brand equity there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's also interesting bringing it under GMC as opposed to, uh, you know, Chevy or Cadillac. And and again, I sort of like that idea. It's, it's very um, ironic because when I was living in the Middle East, GMC is incredibly popular over there and even more so than, than it is here in many ways. Like you don't see a lot of Chevys, you see a lot of GMCs and, you know, obviously the, the Middle East is the bastion of, of big oil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to, to make it, uh, you know, a, a GMC nameplate is even more ironic yeah, on a global and, you know, basis. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting that consumers, even though GMC vehicles are essentially the same as Chevrolet, Vehicles, you know, the trucks and the utilities, you know, the, you know, they might have a few additional features here and there, right. but they're they're effectively the same vehicles, and yet the perception of GMC as a brand is so different from Chevrolet. Um, you know, it's seen as a more premium brand, and, and their tagline is professional grade. Right. You know, and you know, going back to when they killed Hummer, you know, at that time going through bankruptcy and they're trying to decide which brands to kill, which ones to preserve. You know, they they when the um, the task force, the government task force, came in to work on that. You know, they, they wanted to kill everything but Chevrolet and Cadillac. Right. right. You know, they wanted to kill GMC as right, well right. and Buick. You know, and they looked at, at at GMC and they looked at the, the data and looked at the average transaction and prices price for a GMC versus the equivalent Chevrolet vehicle. And said, uh, yeah, no, we'll we'll keep GMC. <laughs> Good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. You know, very very little additional engineering required. And, you know, so yeah, no, we'll we'll keep that. Good, yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think it makes sense. You know, because it's got this more premium, um, this more premium perception. Right. Um, you know, and you know they've said that you know they expect you know when the Hummer you know goes on sale, you know it's going to be profitable from day one. Which is fascinating yeah. for an electric vehicle. Yeah. I mean that that's that's a bold statement. Yeah. Well, uh, Royce actually said that all of their new EVs are going yeah. to be profitable. Well, that's that's also is, been yeah. one of one of the tenants of Mary Barra's uh, stand at General Motors is the business case for it. Does yeah. this make sense? Mm-hmm. And she has made tough decisions on getting the you know getting GM out of unprofitable markets, yeah. getting it out of unprofitable nameplates, and so you know it's it. It shows a lot of discipline, but also adherence to her perspective on, on you know, saying if, if we're not going to do it unless we can make money at it. And yeah. so, you know, she needs to be commended for that. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it, you know, it's 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 a wise move, you know, from a management standpoint. Yeah. And you know, so now, you know, I mean, I've you know, I've certainly been critical of, of GM. You know, recently, you know, they, back a couple of years ago, they talked about launching all these new zero emission vehicles, but right. we hadn't seen anything yet. Right, right. And now we're finally starting to see that roll out. You know, and we all we got a te- was a tease of the Hummer EV. Uh, we'll see the full. They're going to unveil it in full in May. Right. Um, but you know, we saw the May twentieth. Yeah, we saw yeah. a teaser of the the front, the grill. You know, and they've kind of taken that classic Hummer seven slot grill. And done a stylized version of it for an EV. You know, so you get these seven bright vertical bars across this backlit 
um, you know, fascia. Right. Um, you know, and I think it's it's from there it looks like an interesting design. And then you know, at the the announcement, the plant announcement, you know, they the backdrop that they had, you know, showed a profile of. A more traditional pickup truck profile. So we'll see what the rest of it looks like. But more I think, traditional than what? Uh, um, than than the Cybertruck. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you know, you clearly, you know, clearly delineated cab and bed. Right. You know, uh, but sleeker. Right. You know, uh, right. so I mean, clearly they're going to go for more something more aerodynamic. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the rest of it. But you know, you're not going to have this triangular monstrosity. Yeah. Um, and then of course the other things that they that they did reveal about it, thousand horsepower. <laughs> And they talked about 11,500 foot-pounds of right. torque, which clearly is the, the torque <laughs> at the wheels as, after you go through the, the gearing. Uh, it'll probably be somewhere in the, somewhere between 12 and 1,400 foot-pounds at the yeah, motors. But it's still pretty good. Yeah. Still going to be a lot oh, of yeah. fun. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is going to be a real usable truck. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it, it's going to be, I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch, you know, the electric pickup truck market to see if traditional pickup truck buyers are really willing to, to go yes. for EVs. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's it's a it's a challenging use case for it an is. EV. Um, you know, you can certainly stuff a lot of battery between those frame rails right. of a pickup truck. You know, there's plenty of room for batteries in there. Um, and, you know, you, you can get a lot of nominal range, you know, but what really happens to the range when you load two or 3,000 pounds in the bed or... You know, tow a 10, 12, 14,000 pound trailer. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll see next, well, it probably early early next year, we'll start to see, um, you know, because you're going to have the Rivian uh, R1T coming yeah. out, you know, launching production around the end of this year, early next year. Um, the F 150 electric, you know, which right. we'll probably see sometime in the next few months. Um, the, um, the, the, the Hummer EV, and then eventually the, the Cybertruck, and also. You know, Fisker announced plans to do an electric pickup truck, or Karma, Karma did. Karma did. So what do you, how do you think that GM and Ford's approaches are different? Ford has not backed away from hybrids, correct? No, not at okay. all. In fact, they they're, very, they're very, very much promoting hybrids and plug-in hybrids. So will the F-150 be pure electric, you think? Both. Or they'll be... There, there's going to be a hybrid version, because they've okay. got that modular hybrid system that they've developed for rear-drive vehicles. So okay. we've seen it now on Explorer and Aviator. Right. You know, on, as a standard hybrid on Explorer, a plug-in on the Aviator. So they're going to take that same approach, you know, where the motor sits in between the engine and the transmission. Um put that in the F-150, okay. also in the Mustang, right. um, yes, and I would, and and also the Bronco is going to get so, a hybrid version. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Ford is very much, you know, they're, they're hedging, they're covering all the bases. Right. They're doing hybrids and plug-in hybrids and really battery EVs. Really interesting. Um, so, the, you know, and they've talked about the F-150 hybrid, you know, and really promoting, you know, the idea that it's not just for fuel economy, but also... You know, um, for contractors, you know, now, you know, you, you have this uh, power takeoff available, you know, for powering your tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to haul around a generator, a gas right. generator, you know, in the back of your truck, you can just I plug mean, right in and you have high voltage. That's pretty power. cool. Yeah. That's really pretty cool. Yeah. So. All right. We uh, need to get moving and head down to the gate yes. and catch a flight to Minneapolis and then on to Chicago. So uh, we will probably try and reconvene in the next couple of days while we're in Chicago to see talk about what we learned yeah. in Chicago. And, uh, and we'll talk to you later. Yeah, Bye. thanks. And welcome back to part two of this week's show. We're sitting in an Infinity Q60 Coupe on the show floor at the Chicago Auto Show at McCormick Place with Rebecca. What do you think so far of this year's show? 
You know, I always like the Chicago show because it's you actually it's pretty it's fairly slow in terms of of just pace, but it means that you can actually see both the products and the people mm-hmm. that you always want to see. You know, other shows, it's just you just bounce from one meeting to another and you just end up really I feel like sometimes I've been at auto shows and I haven't seen a car I've just seen people which is good I love people but here it's a nice balance of going between car meetings people events and you get to see some you know some cool product they've had some some nice reveals here yeah I mean when I first came to this show in 2007 I think when I was still writing for Autoblog um, you know from the first time I came here yeah, I remember people joking about this being the biggest little auto show in America. Mm. You know, because it I mean from a pure physical size standpoint, it is the biggest auto show in the country. Is that it, what they count it as? Because I didn't know what yeah, that Yeah, in terms of floor space, you okay. know, here McCormick Center uh, here in Chicago is a huge convention center. And I believe that it's it is the largest in terms of square footage okay. of auto shows. But you know, even from, you know, I mean, it's it's slowed down since 2007, but even back then, in terms of news, it was always a relatively slower show. There wasn't a lot of huge introdu- introductions here. Um, you know, there have been some over the years, uh, but, you know, in, in the past decade or so, there there hasn't been a lot of huge product introductions here, but there's some, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place, and like you say, it's a good place to, you know, to just slow down a little bit and, and talk to some people including uh, a little just a little earlier this afternoon you and I sat down with Joe Eberhardt the CEO of uh, Jaguar Land Rover North America and, and we'll include that uh, on the end we'll add that on the end of this uh, this episode um, but um, you know in terms of ter- let's start with the product I mean what have you seen of product today that is interesting well the other thing too is this is the first year that detroit wasn't before that's yeah the chicago auto that's show true. Yeah. so this is they've been able to take advantage of that so you know so one of the one of the products i thought was really really cool was the ford gt and not just because it's the ford gt because obviously that's, that's an that's, incredible that's cool by definition. exactly but i love the fact that they just put clear coat over the carbon fiber. They also increased the horsepower by 13. But I feel, you know, I just thought that was really, really cool to be able to do that and to show and showcase the carbon fiber body on this thing. That w- that I just thought was, yeah. was really cool. Um, Nissan, who were hosted by uh, showing a new powertrain in the Frontier, I thought was a little bit Interesting. It's well, a fifteen-year-old vehicle. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and they acknowledged that last night right. at their, at their event. You know, they said we know the Frontier has been around for a long time. You know, in fact, um, as as part of that demonstration, um, they brought out the owner. I think Brad Murph. I think uh, his name. yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's a local Chicago area guy that you know runs a delivery business. And he has a 2007 Frontier that they had up on the stage last night. That just turned over one million miles. Yes, and uh, and and so you know, and they had this this thirteen fourteen year old Frontier sitting there next to a brand new twenty twenty model, 
that was almost indistinguishable. And you, you can't. The, the, the biggest difference from the from both interior and exterior, but interior, I think the biggest difference was his has crank windows. Yes. And the new, the 2020 with their new powertrain, actually has uh, you know power windows. They, so that they, was exciting. They, yes, they, <laughs> they have finally made power windows standard on the <laughs> Nissan Frontier for 2020. Uh, up until now, manual crank windows have always been standard. You could get power windows as an option. But they were they were always standard equipment, and uh, so now no more manual crank windows in the Frontier. So that was pretty exciting. And, but for that. but they, they also, as you mentioned, they they put in a new powertrain, a new 3.8 liter direct injected V6, um, which should be more fuel efficient, more powerful than what they had before, um, and this is also a preview of the next generation Frontier, which is finally coming. They're going to unveil yes. it uh, late this year, and it'll go on sale uh, sometime yep. early next, early in 2021. And I did actually put up a review of the new Frontier powertrain on RebeccaDrives.com. Oh, so good. if you want some more information on that, uh, it's up there. It's up there on the site. Uh, the other, So when I talk about the we bounce between cars and people in meetings, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to... Johan Denation. Denation, thank you. Uh, from who's the new COO of Volkswagen, and he had some interesting things to say about just what that brand is doing overall. They did show the new a uh, refreshed Atlas here, uh, and the and I actually got the chance, I think, really for the first time, to see the Atlas. Coupe is that what they're calling the the um, the cross sport the cross sport uh, thank you and but one of the things I asked him was what do dealers want you know what are they looking for and he said dealers really want performance from the Volkswagen brand uh, and while there is a strong commitment to electric vehicles I they they are starting to realize and I think we we heard this from Joe Eberhardt at JLR as well, that performance and EVs actually are very intertwined. Right. And as opposed to an EV being an environmentally friendly solution, it's actually a great opportunity to put some power and performance into your vehicle. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that we're starting to, that we actually started seeing a few years ago with the launch of the BMW i3, and we're going to see more of going forward, uh, is that you know, starting in the you know the 1980s, you know, we had this trend away from rear wheel drive to front wheel drive. You know, for largely for right. packaging reasons. You know, you you put the engine transversely in the front, drive the front wheels. It takes up a lot less space. You have more room inside the vehicle because you don't need a, a huge transmission tunnel or, or drive shaft tunnel. And you know, so most mainstream cars went from rear drive to front drive, which you know has some traction advantages in in, in poor weather, sure. but. It also it, it has some dynamic challenges because when you're asking the front wheels to do both steering effort and tractive effort to move the vehicle, you know it it limits what you're what you can do there. Um, and one of the advantages with going to electric, electric motors are so small mm. that you can stick a motor at either axle or both axles, and you know it doesn't take up much space. And so, you know, with MEB, the MEB, the Volkswagen MEB platform vehicles, the first one being the ID3 hatchback in, in Europe, and we're going to get the ID4 here in, in North mm -hmm. America. And that's uh, the latest report now is originally, they were, I guess they were planning to launch it at the New York Auto Show in April. Right. Um, there was a report came out this morning um, that it's actually going to, they've pushed that back to June in the Detroit Auto Show. Johan wouldn't commit to any yeah. particular date, <laughs> only that it would be sometime this year. 
Um, but, uh, you know, those vehicles, that all the MEB platform vehicles, the default configuration is now rear-wheel drive. Well, and the great thing, too, is that it also enhances the... Uh, the looks of the vehicle, the proportions mm -hmm. of yeah. the vehicle. You can get, ironically, you can get this long hood, which of course doesn't have an engine in it anymore. It's got, you know, storage or something. Or in one case, I saw a picture of shrimp. In, oh, that was, <laughs> yeah, that was in a Mustang Mach-E. Yes, that they, was weird. They packed the front trunk <laughs> full of ice and uh, put out a, a shrimp, uh, shrimp uh, tray on there, basically. But I thought that Johan was, you know, and, and of course you were there as well talking about just what you know what consumers want and and the opportunities that that Volkswagen has so I hadn't sat down with him before yeah so that was interesting uh, yeah I mean I've, I've first met Johan about 12 13 years ago yeah and um I've talked to him on a semi-regular basis over the years and it, yeah it's interesting you know he, he acknowledged you know that compared to you know like a Toyota or you know General Motors or you know a lot of the other big mainstream brands here in North America, at least, you know, Volkswagen's huge in Europe. They're the biggest right, automaker yes. globally. Um, but here in North America, they're a relatively small player in terms of volume. They are. And so, you know, they have to be a little more choosy about what vehicles they bring to market here because they just don't have enough volume to justify everything they might want to do. And so one of the ways to hopefully grow the brand is to make vehicles that are more engaging, that excite customers more. Right. Um, you know, and that's, you know, the, you talked about the performance, you know, the design, the driving dynamics of these vehicles. And, and I think that, um, you know, the shift towards electrification is going to help them. You know, certainly, you know, cars like the GTI and the Golf R, you know, are a big part of that, that strategy. Um, and they're, they're very important to Volkswagen. But, you know, he, I think he said Golf R sales are pretty steady, what, three, 400 a month? Right. Um, you know, which is not a lot, but it, you know, it keeps people interested in Volkswagen as a brand. But I think the, the shift to electric uh, with these MEB vehicles is gonna, is gonna help them a lot because they, they have a lot more flexibility, uh, both in the driving dynamics, but also, um, you know, in being able to scale up and down power levels. Right. Uh, you know, with slightly larger or more powerful motors. So it'll it'll be interesting to watch over the next several years. Yeah, no, I think that will be really cool. Uh, the other thing that we saw, Toyota revealed nightshade. Their, the nightshade more editions. Nightshade, more nightshade editions. And then also the Highlander hybrid yes. version, uh, which is going to hit the market soon. And then... What else did we see? I'm trying to think now as I look through my pictures. Um, um, Honda showed a, a mid-cycle refresh of oh, okay. the Civic Type one. R. Okay. Um, so they've done a little bit of styling tweaks, um, you know, to the the front and rear fascia. It's got a bigger grill uh, for better cooling, uh, and it's also got um, uh, a new color option, this Boost Blue, which is a fantastic looking yeah, color. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. Oh, um, and then Jeep just had their Mojave yes. version, which is. Uh, the Gladiator Mojave. Right, Gladiator Mojave, which is specific for sand yes. driving, which um, there's a launch at the end of March, uh, which should be a lot of fun to watch that and yeah, see so what I, happens I, there. I, I wrote on Forbes about the, the Gladiator Mojave and, and what they're doing, what Jeep is doing, They've for years now they've had the um, trail rated badge that they apply to their, their really off-road capable models. Right. And, and every single model in the Jeep lineup has a trail rated version. You know, um, on the uh, on the Wrangler, I think the Wrangler. I think they might all be trail rated. Yeah, but so. um, on on the others, on the 
Cherokee, Compass, uh, Renegade. Right. It's the Trailhawk models. Those are the trail. They, they have oh, the trail rated right. badge on the fender, and trail rated means that they've got the you know the two range transfer case with the four wheel drive low, the locking rear differential, um, all terrain tires, and you and I you know we we drove a couple of those at right. uh, at the the Chrysler What's New event uh, last summer at uh, the, uh, the Chelsea Proving Grounds, and those you know even the Renegade uh, you know Renegade Trailhawk is a very capable off road vehicle. That was incredible. It's amazing what that thing can do. So those are designed, you know, to for really for go anywhere, you know, going down trails, over boulders, and so on at relatively low speeds. What they're introducing now is a new version, what they're calling desert rated, um, which is uh. really it's targeting kind of like the Ford F-150 Raptor. Right. Uh, type of performance level. So off-road, high-speed off-road driving, uh, you know, in desert <laughs> conditions awesome. over sand or, you know, even even dry desert, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, like Well, like what Mojave I would have done in, Sa in Saudi. Yes. Not that I ever drove in the desert in Saudi Arabia. That never happened. No, of course not. Never. Because that was not allowed then. It was not allowed. And I never, ever ever drove in the desert in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so the the first of Jeep's desert-rated models is the new Gladiator Mojave. Um, and what they've done with that, um, they've uh, they've done some uh, some interesting stuff on it. They've got these new Fox dampers on there, um, which you know, are oh, two, the Fox two, Bilston, which are like some of the yeah two best two and a two and a half inch dampers. Right. Ford also uses Fox dampers on the the Raptors, mm. uh, but they're a different different one. These are even, I guess even a higher grade damper from Fox than uh, what Ford uses. They have external reservoirs. So what that does is it allows the fluid, the hydraulic fluid in the dampers to, to go into the, the reservoir and get cooled. So the, the fluid, because what you have, you know, if you've got a lot of motion in the dampers, you can start to get fade and it loses some of that damping effectiveness. And so it cools the, cools the fluid in that external reservoir. And so you get better performance, you know, on long distance, high speed off-road driving. Um, they also added some uh, new jounce dampers. Um, so what that does is those are in the springs as you reach maximum compression. So when you get airborne and you come down and, it, you know, the springs compress down, those jounce dampers give some more resistance there, you know, to help ah, keep it from bottoming okay. out too right. much. Uh, new skid plate, new, um, oh, and for extra durability for that kind of high-speed running, the uh, the steering knuckles that are normally cast aluminum are replaced with cast iron uh, knuckles wow. for, for extra durability. So, you know, the, and, the, and there's a few other things as well, uh, more uh, heavily bolstered seats. You know, when you're bouncing around in the desert, right. you know, at high speeds, you know, you want to make sure you stay stay in place. And so uh, it's they've, they've done some good stuff there. I expect we'll see before long uh, a Wrangler Mojave and, and potentially some of the other models as well. Sure. Yeah. So that was really cool. Uh, one of the concepts that was here that's a lot of fun yeah. is the Kia Habanero concept. That's, that's a, that one's actually been around a while. Uh, I didn't they, see it before. They, they showed that. Uh, they showed that at the LA Auto Show. Oh, I didn't go to LA. Yeah. So it's. It's, it's a it's a concept that is a preview of the design direction for the next generation Nero. Right, so that's all electric. I uh, really fun. I just I thought it was really great looking. Actually, and you know what? Uh, now that I think of it, it was actually they first showed it at the New York Auto Show last year. The Habanero. Really? That's where they unveiled it. Because in New I was York with like four year. other people and we hadn't. Nobody had seen it before. Yeah, it was in New York last year. That is so funny. Yeah. And then the tra the Chevy Trailblazer, did you see that thing? Yeah, the Trailblazer was at L.A. Okay, so that's what I yeah. hadn't seen. So the Trailblazer is a new uh, small, lower cost, small 
uh, crossover uh, that fits in just above the tracks, between the tracks and the uh, Equinox. So that was having formerly had a Trailblazer, uh, I was <sighs> resigned <laughs> to <laughs> that, that new that design language. That, that, that name to a, a, a very different kind of vehicle. Yes, exactly. Um, and then I think probably one of the last, you know, really, There's really also, uh, fun things. Well, one more thing from Fiat okay. Chrysler is an update to the Pacifica. Oh, the Pacifica, right, right. exactly. So you've got the, um, the 2021 Pacifica, which gets a little mild uh, refresh, external refresh. Um, in the press release, they talked about making it look a little more like a, a crossover. <laughs> Whatever, you yeah. know. Still has <laughs> a sliding fine. door. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I... I'm unconvinced, but yeah. you know. But uh, the big the big news about it is that um, for 2021, it'll be the first model that gets um, FCA's new UConnect uh, UConnect Five infotainment system, which is much more powerful than before. Okay. Like much more powerful processors. It's uh, it's running Android Automotive underneath. It's got a new. Um, it's got Alexa built in. Oh, cool. uh, so if you're an Alexa user, you know you can use it just like you would use uh, your your Amazon Echo at home or any of your Echo devices. Um, and uh, TomTom navigation, natural language, voice recognition, whole bunch of cool features. And I've got a little video walkthrough that I did with uh, um, Nick Kappa. with Nick Kappa from Chrysler, and uh, we'll post that up on YouTube, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, cool. And then the last thing that is always a highlight of any auto show are the Subaru puppies. <laughs> Which I still have to go over and see. Oh my I gosh, they're seen the puppies so yet. cute. So Subaru is actually doing 40 auto shows with puppies now. And they, they, they uh, collaborate with a local shelter in town. They take care of a lot of the fees, the adoption fees and stuff. And they said that they have enormous success with puppies that they bring here. And they rotate them out. They, they bring that's, different. That's great. Different, it's, it's amazing. Um, we also, we just came from Jaguar too. Yes. Jaguar. No, we mentioned uh, that earlier. But they showed the, the Hot Wheels contrast that oh, they're doing, yes. which is really cool. Yeah. So uh, JLR um, got uh, the Guinness folks to come out and they, they got the Got a world record yes. <laughs> for the most complex um, Hot Wheels track, and, uh, unboosted Hot Wheels track. And the There's seven seven loop de loops. You know they've got it set right. up on a ramp. They drop the car down there. It goes through seven loops without any kind of boosting except for gravity. Um, and and so they're they're doing a contest for engineering schools uh, to see who can come up with a more complex uh, Hot Wheels uh, Hot Wheels course. And then if they're able to do that. They're going to give fifty thousand uh, dollars towards scholarship towards for engineering students. So they they had some of them here uh, at the Chicago at the Chicago Auto Show from Illinois, one of the universities. I think uh, University of Illinois Chicago. Chicago. So it was really cool. It's I think it's a great example of collaborating with uh, universities, getting kids interested in vehicles uh, and and in classic toys like Hot Wheels that we all know and love yeah so. so so when the when the bad stuff in the world is getting you down yeah. go go play with a puppy exactly. you know a puppy, a puppy will always make you feel better and then go play with some hot wheels and, and it'll all be good it'll all, all none, be none, none of the bad stuff will matter exactly anymore. <laughs> all right rebecca thank you so much for doing this in person again thanks that was fun it's always good yeah. and uh we'll from here we'll roll right into the interview with joe eberhardt uh talking about what Jaguar Land Rover is doing, especially around electrification, what's going on in China and Brexit. And that'll be it for this this episode. Yeah, it's awesome. Right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 
um, Joe, um, Jaguar Land Rovers had a couple of challenging years now. Um, you know, it's been you know, tough uh, making the transitions as, you know, as, the, as, the, as the industry changes, you know, um, you know, especially going into electrification. Um, yeah. The I-Pace is a wonderful vehicle. It's got, you know, I've, I've driven it. It's great to drive. It is a true Jaguar. Um, but it's, it's struggled uh, in the marketplace, particularly here in North America. Um, what do you see, you know, what, what's, what's the approach for Jaguar Land Rover going forward as, as it transitions into this new era of transportation and mobility? And how do you, how do you keep the, the two brands relevant? Yeah, so I would just maybe start by taking a look back historically of our development. Um, and when you say we struggled, I think for the last couple of years, um, I think globally that's true to some extent for the last year, maybe at the most, uh, because the years before have been significantly successful. Um, you know, since the Tata ownership of the company, we uh, have uh, tripled our volume in a short 10 years. We have. Uh, significantly uh, increase our profitability and grew the business dramatically. And in North America specifically, we were the fastest growing brand actually three out of the last four years, twice with Land Rover and once with Jaguar. We went from uh, selling you know, less than, um, I think it was 40,000 units a short eight years ago, where we're now at 130,000 units between the two brands. So I think We've actually a remarkable success story uh, for the business in North America, including the last year where we continued to grow despite a flat market. Um, so I think that that speaks to the strength of the product portfolio and the strength of the brand. Now, clearly there have been some trends which have been challenging the industry in total as they have us. The shift from cars to SUVs was much faster and much more pronounced than anybody could have expected. Uh, today it's almost uh, 75% SUVs versus 25% cars. Um, that was a short two years ago, one-thirds, two-thirds. So that trend uh, continues and that, that is challenging. We're well positioned with Land Rover to take advantage of that. We are to some degree uh, lucky or happy or have well planned that <laughs> shift on, on Jaguar by having you know, the E-Pace and F-Pace, which have done really, really well. And uh, coming to your specific question, we have then added the I-Pace, which uh, was the first battery electric SUV from an established luxury brand. I'm not counting Tesla, obviously <laughs> they were there before. And we've been able to add that. And it was a gutsy move. It was a risky move. I think long term it will pay off. Uh, but in the short term, it is challenging, um, as it is for every other luxury car manufacturer, that's not Tesla. I mean, if you have that discussion with Audi, if you have oh, it yeah. with others, if you will have it with BMW once they launched uh, their full electric vehicle, Mercedes just announced they'll delay it for a year. Um, and it's not easy to make um, a business case out of it uh, for the manufacturer and, and for the customer, because at the gas of uh, price of gas at the moment in the U.S., right. uh, it's a difficult economic argument, right? Um, if you drive 15,000 miles on average at 250 a gallon, uh, the advantage of the electricity is not enough to offset the incremental right. cost. So economically, it's a difficult argument. So the only way you can, and there's a lot of questions and doubts still around range and 
practicality and charging times and where do I charge it. So you take all of that together and it's a difficult sales argument. What needs to happen is people to actually get in the car, drive it and live with it. And that's why customers that do end up buying an electric car have the highest loyalty rate, right? It's 75, 80, 85% because once they live with it, um, they realize charging is not an issue. You have your home charger, you plug it in, and you basically always have a full car, right? At 250, 300 mile range, you plug it in, that's all you need. And who drives more than 250 miles on a daily basis? Hopefully nobody. Hopefully no. Yeah, well, I was at the, the luncheon today uh, with uh, Cody from, um, from Audi, and right. you know, he talked about some stats of you know, 98% of, of single trips are less than 50 miles. Right. You know, and, right. and 30 miles you know, is the average daily commute and driving, driving for people. Right, so I was in an I-Pace for a couple of months, and my commute is 50 miles one way. And it was never an issue, right? I plugged it in at home, it was fully charged. I plugged it in at work, fully charged. It was the most convenient way. Now, when I dropped my, my daughter off in St. Louis, 1,050 miles, slightly different story. But how often do you do that, right? right. And so, so anyway, long story, I think it will take time. And what's required is people to actually live with it, drive it, and then spread the word. Because we cannot, as a manufacturer, if we say it, Nobody believes this right. necessarily. Um, that's the one. And the other issue is just e- economically, it's still a difficult decision to make. So we get a lot of people that are interested in an iPace because it's new, it's it's interesting, it's exciting, come in. And then they see a Velar, a Land Rover Velar, or a, um, uh, an F-Pace next to it. And they realize from a cost perspective that those are maybe in the short term a little more attractive and walk out with that. Which is okay. Yeah, I mean, you're still selling cars. I still sell a car, right. but it doesn't help yeah. the iPad. So yeah, there's no, there's the lack of learning curve. Also, the internal combustion engine is familiar, and mm-hmm. you look and say, I don't have to learn how to use that, right. and the and the risk right. is significant for people who say, I don't want to spend my money. And you have the who's an early adopter. Some people are they you know they thrive on being an early adopter. Absolutely. Being the first one, but the majority of the market, most people don't necessarily want to be the first one. And, and those early adopters have already bought the Tesla. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah. Sort of like, because I know luxury car buyers. Right? Yeah. Well, maybe not this time, but my next time I buy a car, I'll buy an electric vehicle. Well, because like innovators they're... are 2% of the market. Right. Like, if you look at the technology adoption curve, and that is where we have been sitting. Right. Yeah. You know, market you know in the EV market, yeah. it's not <laughs> You know, that, we're, that we sit there. So how are you, first, from an immediate standpoint, is the coronavirus impacting production in China? Anything, feeling anything from that at all? Um, not to my knowledge. I mean, we're, and I'm, I don't know the details of my uh, colleague in China, okay. but we don't have anything that we import okay. from China on the product side. Which is a whole side. separate right. issue then. So that's a whole separate And then Brexit? Issue. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it has happened now, right. which is the first piece of clarity. Um, but yeah. what really needs to happen is now over the next uh, 11 and a half to 12 months okay. is to figure out the trade and customs union between right. the uh, UK and the rest of the world, assuming that that goes well and that there will be a form of trade and customs agreement, there shouldn't be any impact. But having said that, it took them the last couple of years to get to this point, and we know how well that went. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to to 
think that in 11, 12 months, everything will be figured out. But now you have Boris. Yeah. <laughs> so we hope, I mean, we hope it will be an orderly um, process uh, that will conclude at the end with free trade with the major trading partners, which would be in the interest of everybody. Right. And the, the I-PACE is already assembled in Austria. Correct. Um, do you see perhaps additional products being assembled outside of the UK? I mean, like you're doing some stuff in China as well. Um, right. So we have um, a production facility in Slovakia, in Nitra, which is building the Discovery and will be building the Defender. Uh, and then we have the partnership in Austria, which at the moment does the ePays and the uh, iPays. We do have a plant in China, but that plant is uh, producing only for local uh, production and sale. They do the Evoke, they do an XF long wheelbase, a Discovery Sport, and an XE is being built local. Are you concerned about the ZEV mandate out of California? Because that's really not gone away at all. And obviously California's a big, it's a third of the U.S. market. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, compliant either through what we sell ourselves or uh, through credit purchases. Um, at this point, it's, it's well achievable. Um, you know, the standards have changed a little bit at the federal level. Uh, the California ones we can meet. So for, for the time being, we're good. But it's always a big question what comes next, right, <laughs> that nobody knows. Uh, uh, it's quite unpredictable, but for the time being, we should be okay. Um, as you try, you know, a couple of years back, JLR talked about you know shifting significantly towards electrification, having electrification mm-hmm. options on every vehicle, and, and you you started to do that. You've got you know the um, the new Evoque is a 48 volt mild hybrid. You've got plug-in hybrids on the Range Rovers. You've got the iPace and, and other other products coming. Um, do you in order to actually get consumer adoption of this. Are you looking at any kinds of programs or anything to try to spur more adoption um, beyond just trying to educate people? Uh, you know, other, other manufacturers are doing things to try to reduce the, the friction and some of the pain points, in particular around charging. Right. Yeah, we, we run a couple of pilots or have run a couple of pilots in California where we uh, provided a free home charger installation. Mm-hmm. For instance, which has worked really well, and we have seen a significant higher uptick in um, California as a result. We actually uh, focused our communication on the electric um, sub-segment to a much greater degree, did the home charger um, pilot. We have worked with our financial services partner, Chase, uh, JP Morton Chase, to through their mortgage um, Division talked to customers at the time when they actually mortgage their home. Is there to roll that roll in charging to, to roll in the charging then? And all of those things start getting some traction and are a bit unusual as a tactic, but have helped us improve in those pilot markets compared to the rest of the country. So based on those learnings, we're looking at rolling that out potentially nationally. We also changed our communication approach and maybe Stuart you can talk to that yeah. a little bit to really tell people it's an electric car because at the beginning we launched a Jaguar I-Pace and nobody knew what it was really right so right. we were being very subtle in our advertising um, there are two things I wanted to say that one I don't think that Jaguar 
is a big enough company to take on the challenge of Not convincing right. the U.S. market to start, you know, adopting right. electrification. I think that's we have to sort of fall in with everybody else and try and ride the wave of people as they naturally evolve into the electrification market and then ensure, as Joe said, they have to know when they decide to go shopping for an electric vehicle, they decide you know, do that research, a Jaguar's on their list. Right. And so that's been our priority. And through direct mail and through advertising, we've made that a priority. So some of the new ads that we have out for iPace, is just in the beginning, it was sort of like, you had to really be paying attention and they had to like figure it out. Oh, it's quiet, it's silent, it's electric. Oh, I get it. No, the, the new ads that we have for the iPace explicitly say this is how Jaguar makes an electric SUV. Explicitly show the customer plugging it in, unplugging it, and then enjoying the car as you'd enjoy any car, which I think is the, the, the nice balance that we're trying to, we're not trying to sell you on electrification, we're trying to sell you on the car as an appealing vehicle to own and drive, but we gotta make sure you know it's also electric. Right, it just so, happens to be electric right, as well. Right, the reason you're buying it is not because it's electric. Right. We're gonna leave that, we're not gonna be able to solve that right. ourselves. Right. People who are interested in electric, they'll need to see it as a normal purchase that's a, right. they could relate to. Right, do you see benefits from Formula E? Well, definitely, um, as that grows in popularity, it is a, um, I don't want to say easy story to tell, but there is definitely some trends for there. So, for instance, there's a software update now on the current iPace that's out there, which will extend the range by 30 miles, I think. Yeah. 20 wow. or 30 miles. And that was a direct output from the okay. Formula E program. Uh, so there is, there are a lot of learnings that can be transferred. Right. And from a consumer standpoint as well, do yeah. they go to an event? You know, I mean, as we like talk Brooklyn, about it. You know, that was a great event. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but also just, what's the point of racing in general normally? Is it to communicate a, a performance message about a vehicle or about a brand? Right. And so now you have a whole sport, Formula E racing, dedicated to communicating, really, this the idea that electrification is a high-performance right. um, character in the, in the industry. So I think that's the most important part of Formula E is it starts to get that word out among the new audience that electric vehicles are about high performance. Right. And that's what makes them appealing, especially at the luxury end. Well, it, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say. We do it on the podcast a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, with, like, with the iPace, for example, or the iPace, for example, you know, a lot of, you know, when you get in that car, it feels like a, like a Jaguar. Right. You know, it, it's not. You just have the conversation yeah, with someone. It's, it's, not, it's not dramatically different from, you know, driving a, an F-Pace or, or any other Jaguar, which I think to a Jaguar fan is great. Um, you know, but I we, think we think that's a selling point to a, your average, maybe not the, the early adopter, but yeah. someone who, anyone who's been shopped for electric vehicle and say, I want an electric vehicle, I want this new technology, but I also want the car want to look and feel, look like a, a advanced that, luxury vehicle. And that's why I think it will take a little longer. I think it is strategically the right direction for us. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it also limits yourself somewhat, right? right. It takes longer. It's a longer obviously, game. Tesla has kind of gone a different direction. Exactly. I was just wondering if you thought that, you know, do you think it's better for for you for Jaguar as a brand to stick with some of that familiarity? I think we almost have to because we don't have the... And from a brand perspective, and I'm really passionate about that in my spare time, I teach brand strategy at graduate classes at NYU. So... I think you have to be authentic and you have to, as a brand, know 
what you're about and then evolve that. You cannot, I mean, many brands have tried that. Is it, this is who I am today. Let's forget that it's all bad. I'm going to be something different. And now more than ever. Yeah, that doesn't Because work. kids can just look on the internet right. and see <laughs> what you were before. And I th- exactly. And as, <laughs> I don't so. think as a result you're authentic. I don't think it works. So for Tesla, and credit to them, it was the absolute right thing to do. You say, forget all of that. We're completely different. We ripped up the rule book and that's well, they had no legacy are. to it. Right. No legacy. I mean, they're all based on hope right now, right. though. Exactly. But for us to <laughs> then say, oh, guess what? This is a new shiny thing. Right. will be the same than Tesla, right? That would right. have not resonated, I think, with anybody. Now, we don't, as a result, get those that want something completely different. We will evolve, hopefully, with our customers as they make the transition. That's really the hope and, and the, the bet. Um, but that will be a longer road. It will take longer. But arguably, for us, it will be the more successful long-term play. So our electric cars will always be more Jaguar than just an electric car. Right. Um, and you will see that, you saw it in the iPads already, and you will see it in, in the next electric car from us, which is the XJ. So I think we will evolve that as well. And, and it seems like that's probably a, a smart thing because you know once you get to electric, you know, with, with internal combustion, you know, and you could you could often tell you know from the feel and the sound what without even looking at it what what vehicle that was you know based on right. the character of right. the powertrain you lose a lot of that with internal or when you go to electric it, it becomes less of a product differentiator so you have to figure out how you're going to separate yourself from the crowd and maybe keeping some of those other attributes maybe is the right way to go absolutely and um, without talking negatively about Tesla but their, their differentiation is in, in the electronics and the HMI for the time being. Uh, it's certainly not in the drivability and the materials and the design of the car. Right? And the ownership experience. And the ownership experience. That, the that's really a very, experience and service experience. That is a very good point. And we do think that our retailers are actually a competitive differentiator, which, we, which is why they're investing heavily to the tune of $1.5 over the last two and next three years into updating the facilities and to updating their processes to make sure that that sales and service experience is adequately supportive of, of the product. Right. One, one of the, the issues in the past as manufacturers have tried to introduce plug-in vehicles, electric vehicles, has been some reluctance from dealers from the retail side to actually push those vehicles because you know they're, now they have the potential of losing after-sales business and service. Um, has that been a challenge for, for you? Uh, not yet, just because the, the percentage is so small, really, um, in terms of the overall business. Uh, but there is a new business model that retailers will have to get their head around and that we're working with them to, to, uh, to work out. There's still going to be mechanical issues in the car. Yes, there's less of them. Um, but then they will need to provide other reasons for consumers to spend time and ultimately money at dealerships. And that's this whole experience economy, which we start to transition at the OEM level to. That's why we're spending money on uh, curating things like our 4 by 4 festival for Land Rover, which we've done in Palm Springs. That's why we're doing things like the Hot Wheels Challenge here to be integrated in dealerships. Um, because it's if we just use the old model of 
dealer sells a car and the customer comes back when it breaks. Right. That doesn't work anymore, right? They still will break, but to a much lesser degree and obviously with a less, much lesser uh, volume of, of repairs. So we need to give customers other reasons to come spend time at uh, the point of retail and connect with them through experiences, through events, and offer other value-added services. Do you know how many JLR owners also own a Tesla? Uh, we, I don't know the exact number. We have it. Mm-hmm. I can, we can get that to you. It is, it is a fairly sizable uh, number, especially on the Land Rover side. I think more so mm-hmm. than on the Jaguar mm-hmm. side. Like a Range Rover and a right, Tesla. and a, and a Model S. Yeah, or that, that makes like sense. That. I mean, you know, yeah. you're an affluent customer. Yeah. You want to buy the coolest, most interesting thing. And right. you know, especially or, you know, Model S, Model X owners, that more often than not was not their only car in the household. Well, exactly. You know, they they typically yeah. have multiple vehicles. Right. So, you know, when you're buying, you know, eighty, hundred, hundred and forty thousand dollar cars, you can typically afford multiple. <laughs> more than a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the Defender. It's really mm-hmm. exciting to yeah. have it back. It is. So tell us about that. <laughs> I mean, obviously for us, uh, this is a really big moment. We didn't have the car for 22 years in North America. Um, we sold a total of 7,800 Defenders originally. Um, just a little fun fact. 20% of those are still with the original owners. That's 23 years later, which speaks to the uh, appeal of that particular product. And the challenge then was how do we really bring that car back, um, modernize it for the current times without losing the appeal of the original car? Right. There's two formulas. One is you just copy what you have, right? Which without naming competitors, uh, many of them have done, or try to find, and that's the much more difficult way, a new interpretation that's respectful of the past, but also makes the car fit and ready for the next couple of decades. And that was a challenge to the design team. Excuse me. Absolutely. <laughs> that's all right, you're good. Are these yours? Yeah. Are... Oh, it's just the car, that's you don't the need car. the <laughs> <laughs> Do your thing. Do your thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Do your thing. Um, so that was the challenge given to the design and engineering team. How do you make the most capable Land Rover ever, at the same time be respectful of the past, but interpret it in a modern way? And I think they have come up with the perfect formula. Um, we Originally, there were some skeptical defender, old Defender fans that... When they saw the pictures, we were like, ah, well, we're not sure. I think those that then saw the car in person completely changed their opinion. They said, yep, this is, this is right on. Um, it works. The car, so that's one. You have to actually see it to, to appreciate the personality, the appeal. And then once you drive it, um, the last doubts are gone because it is, I think, the best driving vehicle in our lineup at the moment. It is an incredible combination of on-road dynamic, comfort, and off-road capability. Um, it's almost the impossible that the engineering team has achieved. You can, and hopefully we'll, we'll do that with a, with a press launch, you can take that car on a, on a racetrack and drive it as hard <laughs> as any other car out there. You can then go from the racetrack in the most uh, challenging off-road 
um, track and then you just pull up and you, you cruise the highway. I mean, it's, it's really a brilliant combination. So we're very hopeful, uh, we're excited, and uh, yeah, the momentum is building. We have more interest than on any other car that we've ever launched. We have how many configurations? Over a half a million. Over a half a million fully <laughs> configured cars. Uh, incredible. Something like 7 million yeah. unique visitors to the website. So there's huge, huge interest out there. When's it going on sale here? It's going on sale at the end of spring. Okay. Just a few months away. A few months away. Just in time for summer fun. <laughs> yes, yes, no doubt. Right. No, we're very excited awesome. to have cars like an F-Type and a Defender in the uh, portfolio is a lot of fun. Right, yeah, absolutely. And if you can't wait, you can build a Lego Defender, okay. which is, uh, <laughs> which is uh, actually a quite exciting little thing. So we um, partnered with Lego to, to make a Technics Defender, which is 2,742 pieces, I think. <laughs> and uh, Lego had hoped to sell 70,000 uh, kits over a two-year period. And we sold 150,000 in the first three months. Wow. One of them went to my kids for Christmas. (laughs) It took them 12 hours to build, I think. Wow. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's uh, truly David Beckham built one. John Mayer John built Mayer. one. There's a lot of people, people that I'll have, to, I'll have to add one of those yes, to my collection. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. It's That's a fantastic. lot of work. All right, well, Joe. Happy first snowy day. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate it. Thank you so appreciate much. It. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Find us at wheelbearings.media and on Twitter as at wheelbearingscast. Remember, there's only one vowel. That's the A in cast. We're also at Car Review Tweets on Twitter. Or you could just email us. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. Thanks again for listening to Wheelbearings. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.